0: Happy New Year and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and we're kicking off 2021 a bit differently by revisiting some of our most downloaded, most streamed, most listened to episodes over the five plus years we've been recording the Church Leaders Podcast. Join me for the month of January as we listen to four interviews that have been published in years past, but which continue to encourage and inspire ministry leaders today. I also have a very special announcement, one I've been waiting to share with you for many weeks now. Starting in February, the Church Leaders Podcast is going to shift gears. In years past, we've brought you incredible interviews once a week with today's top leaders in the church. In 2021, we're shifting to a seasonal podcast, with each season exploring a particular theme the Big C Church is currently grappling with. Our first season, which will start February 3rd, 2021, It's going to discuss all the nuances associated with the pro-life movement. As you have doubtless picked up on, the church can be divided on this topic. Of course, we can all agree that abortion is an unholy act that we should work to eliminate. But what is the best way to go about eliminating it? Should we start from the top down with legislation? Is outlawing it the best practice? Or is addressing social issues like access to education and economic stability a better approach? How does the local crisis pregnancy center fit into all of this, and how can ministers like you help there? We'll talk to thought leaders in the evangelical church who grapple with the moral side of abortion as well as the political side, and we'll speak with ministers leading the way on the more practical front in crisis pregnancy centers and the like. You'll likely hear perspectives and information you haven't heard before. You might not agree with all of it, but at the end of the season, you'll definitely be more informed and perhaps even come away with some action steps you and your church can use to help solve the problem of abortion. I certainly hope you'll join me in February for this exciting new season. And now, on to this week's episode. Welcome
1: to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day.
0: Today we're going to revisit an interview my predecessor, Andrew Hess, recorded with Pastor Stephen Furtick in March 2016. Stephen and his wife Holly started Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina with seven other families in 2006. Since then, Elevation has grown exponentially and is now one of the largest churches in the United States. Stephen is also the author of several books, including Unqualified, which Andrew and Stephen discuss in this episode. Andrew asked Stephen about a challenging time in a leader's life, and that's when you face criticism, either from inside or outside your ministry. He had some great answers and advice that has helped him as he's received criticism in his own ministry. And now, let's listen in.
1: Well, Stephen Furtick, it is such a, a great honor to have you on the Church Leaders Podcast. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks. I'm, I'm happy to be a part. And you're the pastor there at Elevation. And um, tell us, for those of us who are listening who might not know as much about Elevation, tell us the kind of the quick story of how God started this work.
2: Okay. Well, I was 16 years old when I gave my life to Christ, and pretty soon after that, started feeling stirred that I was going to be a pastor one day. I was actually reading a a book uh, by Jim Simbala, who pastors the Brooklyn Tabernacle, it's a book called Fresh One, Fresh Fire. And that book fired me up. It was one sentence in particular. He said, I despaired at the thought that my life might slip by without God showing himself mightily on our behalf. And something about that sentence, man, I'm 16 years old. I'm like, I'm going to start a church one day. I'm going to reach people. And of course, you know, I go to college and everything like that. But right after I got married to my wife, Holly, I found myself surrounded by some good families. And so we, along with seven other families, uh, put up a map and started praying about where God would send us and moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, started forming a team and launched the church about 10 years ago and have seen God bless it, grow it. And uh, it's been a faith journey, man, which we can talk about. We've experienced a little bit of everything, really, really high highs and some lows as well. But uh, it's been 10 years now and God has been faithful.
1: Wow. And if you could go back in time 10 years and 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 change one thing about the way that you launched the church, uh what would that be?
2: I guess I would rely on something I heard another pastor said one time. Okay, so this isn't original with me, but he's about twice my age and he was kind of asked that same question. He said uh said something profound. He said, "If I changed anything, it would change everything." So I wouldn't change anything. Mm. And I guess I would co-opt that statement or that sentiment as my own because I look back on some of the things that we did in the first few years, and I think that I must have come across really obnoxious or certain things that I overemphasized in the first couple of years that now I've seen, well, there needs to be a balance to this. But if I hadn't overemphasized them early, I may not have the culture now that enables us to be who we are. So I actually stood up in front of a group of leaders recently and did a whole session called my favorite mistakes which is also a really great Cheryl Crow song mm. that I like with the good baseline but I did a whole talk on it and it was kind of this idea of reframing the mistakes and saying that they make us who we are as much as the the good things we did so hey I mean I might go back and tone down a few things but I also think everything that we were doing was within the context of trying to figure it out from where we were and we can see it more clearly now but Even those missteps, I think, were an important part of of the process of arriving to where we are today, to be who we are.
1: Mm -hmm. And your church has been, it's recognized as one of the fastest growing churches in America. So talk about how, you know, as you look back, are there certain things that you look back and think, man, these are some of the things that we did that just kind of caused this great growth?
2: Yeah, I I think there are. I think uh, building the team with such a strategic focus early on and pouring a lot into the original team was so valuable. Like I look back on the time that I spent with our team when it was just, you know, not we had nothing, but we would sit around and instill our values. And we would, we would read through the book of Acts together and read through other books that we thought were helpful. And we'd talk about the kind of church we're going to be. And you know what? A lot of that stuff we talked about has changed because a lot of it was idealistic based on our picture of ministry. And then actual people come along and screw up all of your plans that you had for how you're going to start a church. But the formation of that team and getting that team so far, like my whole team that started with me is still with me. They were all with me at my 10 year anniversary, which I think is pretty rare that the original team would still be there, but it kind of speaks to their character and their commitment to the vision So creating that depth, that sacrifice that started the church and making that the DNA, it was in the culture from day one. And so then the next group and the next group that came to be a part of the church, they were emulating in many ways the faith of the group that started it. So I really attribute a lot of that to taking the time to build the team from the beginning rather than me doing things. I was focused more on developing them and how we were going to think and how we needed to operate, as well as a tolerance for people not loving what we do. I think at several junctures early on, we had the opportunity to modulate, to meet the preferences of people who were coming along and the courage to stay true to who we were. Sometimes that was a style thing. Sometimes it was a substance thing. Sometimes it was regarding our focal point, but not compromising for the short-term gain of a family that could tithe or just having a little bit of numeric growth. And keeping in mind who we were and working toward that relentlessly, I think that was really important. And I think some of that was God testing our commitment to the vision. It also enabled us to stay really focused on what mattered to us.
1: Mm -hmm. And for the young leaders out there that that are probably in that same stage of building the team, I like what you said there about how important that was. Is there a piece of advice as as they're looking at different people and kind of and thinking about who is the team that that is the right team for us? Is is there something you might say to that young leader?
2: Yeah, it starts with your concept of what the team is going to look like, because I was recently preaching with a a Lego box. I had a, a Star Wars Lego set and I brought it up on stage and showed everybody the picture on the front of the box. And then I took out the pieces and dumped them on the stage and talked about how the pieces don't look like the picture. You know, I I wanted the ship, but I got these pieces. And sometimes we're asking God as leaders, give me a team. I want a team. Well, God's going to give you the team in pieces and he's going to put people in your life that have some skills, but maybe don't have the exposure or the experience. And I think sometimes we think that The team is like a -A Build-A-Bear store where we go in and get all the essential elements of what we want this team member to be and that team member to be. But even Jesus didn't choose his team pre-assembled. He went out and found them and trained them and put up with them and was patient with them. So I think having an expectation of your willingness to invest in the team that you want to build will serve you well rather than waiting for a prefabricated super team of Avengers to drop down out of the heavenly ministerial team supply store
1: hmm And I love that. That's such a neat, neat thing to do, um, a way to illustrate. As you look at yourself, as you've grown as a preacher, are there things that have shifted in your own preaching, like if you if you compared your preaching now to five years ago?
2: Yeah. Hopefully, I'm a little less defensive. I look at some of the early preaching clips, and I'm sure I'll look at the preaching that I'm doing today and see a lot of things that make me cringe, too, in five or ten years. But I, I see a lot of defensiveness and proving myself and and a lot of that, that I hope is becoming less and less. But some of the stuff that you're starting out preaching about establishes your foundation, and then hopefully you can build on it. So for instance, in the early days, it was all that I could do to just deliver the content. Now, hopefully I'm able to explore whether it's in scripture or whether it's connecting scripture with real life at a deeper level. And so I don't know that my philosophy of preaching has changed as much as my approach has, because hopefully I've gained not only the confidence of repetitions, but here's one thing that has changed. When I first started preaching, my first question in coming to the sermon was, how will this preach? In other words, is it funny? Is it entertaining? Will people cry? Does it rhyme? All these things. Will they clap? Can I get them up on their feet? it was more of a reaction-based approach. Not because I had evil intentions, just because I was learning how to do this thing week in and week out, but now it's not so much how will this preach, I'm asking myself what kind of person will this preaching produce? And now I'm getting more into the idea of not just the reaction in the moment to the sermon, but the response, and I try to think toward that a lot more and so, hopefully, my preaching reflects more of my understanding and concern with that process of how people's lives are really changed.
1: Mm. And tell us about kind of your process, like when you when you're preparing a sermon, is there kind of a rhythm that you have? And and I'd love to hear if there's any tools that that you particularly love to use when you're preparing to preach.
2: Well, you've got me on my favorite topic right now. I, I live for it. I'm not a CEO who happens to preach. I I live. To be able to communicate God's truth to people. That's something that I've been passionate about, like I told you, since I was 16. So I'm always trying to grow in it. I'm not saying I'm great at it, but I am growing and I am obsessed with it. So from that standpoint, I don't look for an idea that I can explain right away. When I'm looking for a sermon, what I'm looking for is an idea that I can explore, that I can seek the heart of God, the mind of God, and look for unexpected connections. So I'm starting with a text and I don't even know what my sermon is yet, but I know that I have new territory that I wanna learn about. And so now I figured that if I will devote myself to something that scares me, Ken Burns, the documentary maker said, we are looking for ideas large enough to be afraid of again. I love that because I feel like that's what I'm looking for when I'm looking for a sermon to preach something large enough to be afraid of, something about faith or something about God or something about the connection of two concepts that don't seem to go together or attention and culture and how all of that combines with the truth of God's word. I'm looking for something that scares me, that I don't even know the answer to, but the question is riveting. So then I'm spending time with my commentaries, man. I've got logos on my iPad. I can work on my sermon while my kid is playing baseball. That's amazing. I mean, I don't try to look at it during his game, but practice is pretty boring. So I might be over there working on a sermon in Evernote with Expositor's Bible commentary, Word Biblical commentary. I have NIV application commentaries in my office. Those are my three main ones. I use some pretty basic stuff. I'll Google stuff. Sometimes I find that it doesn't have to be an expensive resource. I love to connect an idea from a magazine like Psychology Today. I may search their database if I'm preaching on isolation and find what interesting articles have been written about that from a psychological standpoint, even if it's secular. And that may illuminate one concept. But I'm really looking for something that lifts, typically coming from the text. And then an unexpected connection. I'm looking for an unexpected connection. That could come as I find the the mega theme of the passage that I'm studying. I may be turned on by a word or a concept or a connection within the context of what came before the miracle that I'm preaching about. But something to create an unexpected connection. And then I want the sermon to be one thing. I don't want three modules or three points with three stories of when I trick-or-treated when I was 17, thrown in so I can buy time. I want the sermon to be one thing. I want to be able at the end of my sermon to reference back to something at the beginning, and it all comes together. And so for me, that process would take all week. I would be working on my concept right up until when I preach it, and I would preach it three different times, and it would change a lot throughout the weekend that I preach it. But my my main concepts— Would be pretty concrete.
1: Mm -hmm. And then after a weekend where you've you've preached your sermon, um, a lot of pastors talk to us about kind of what they experience after a sermon. You know, it's kind of like they talk about like just the whole process of getting ready for it. Is there a way that you kind of you know process after a sermon or reflect on you know how things went?
2: Yeah, my wife encourages me. I know that there are a lot of preacher jokes about you know your wife being your worst critic and the the car ride home and all of that. But I don't really, I don't really uh, have the, the emotional stability to handle that from my wife. I need her to lie to me if it wasn't good. I need her to tell me it was. So then I'm going more for critique. I'm, I'm my own worst critic. So I'm typically watching it back in pieces. I can't watch it back all at one time. But after I've preached it, some of the times that's when I will mentally rewrite the sermon and I, I'll be able to think more clearly after I preach it in points than I am before because I don't have the pressure of actually preaching it. So I found out that thinking about the sermon after I've preached it, even if I never preach it again, is a way to expand my ability and expand my perspective and my insight, because when the pressure is gone, my creativity flows a little more. So I'll even open up a note and write a title on it called What I Wish I Would Have Said and get it out of my system and that helps me develop and stretch a little more. So hopefully I'm clearer next time.
1: Hmm. I think that's a good practice, um, just being able to process. Because I think the pastoral ministry, there's such a grind of every week you've got to preach. Let's talk a little bit um, about, I think one of the challenges of, of being in the limelight and having such a, a great ministry like you do is that there it opens up. There are probably a lot of people that give you criticism or are or, or critical, either from within the church or outside. How do you personally... kind of handle some of that.
2: Well, can I tell you a story about that as a way of answering the question? Um, I was getting ready to go preach a couple of months ago and I had a sermon on in the background on YouTube. And after that sermon finished, I saw a recommended for you thing pop up on YouTube and it was a, you know, algorithm. YouTube tells you what to watch next. So I like put my faith in the hands of YouTube and clicked on the thing. And it was a a theologian who was being interviewed, and they were asking him a question about church culture, and then they went into a lightning round where they asked him different topics and names and what he thought about them, and I knew who the guy was. In fact, I had been assigned uh, one of his books in seminary. He's legendary, very brilliant guy, and uh, I kind of walked away from the room where it was playing, and I was getting ready, and I heard them say my name. They asked him what he thought about me in the lightning round. And I came back in to see what he would say, and he dropped his head and sighed and like exhaled like the mention of my name was toxic to his system. (laughs) So I'm like bracing for what he's going to say about me. And he summed up my whole ministry and life with with one word, and the word was unqualified. And he said it real definitively unqualified. It's like just like a gavel in a death penalty case, unqualified. But what I was surprised about in hearing him say it, because I rewound it a couple of times just to watch it over and over again, was that I wasn't mad and I didn't even find myself arguing. Instead, I almost felt like he summarized the way that I felt ever since I've been doing this thing, not only for the past 10 years, but how how I felt about myself as I've intended to live for God and to lead others. I've always felt unqualified. And I discovered it puts me in pretty good company. We flatten mm-hmm. so many of our biblical heroes and our models. But what Paul had to say about ministry when he was defending his credentials to the super apostles in Second Corinthians revolved around his weakness. He said, I can list my pedigrees. I am this. I am that. I do have gifts. I do have accomplishments. But when I am weak, then I am strong. So what I did instead of getting offended by the theologians' comments, I actually wrote a book with the title Unqualified. That's my new book, and it's about Mm. how God uses broken people to do big things. And for me, it's been a process of acceptance because we can talk about critics, and some days they bother me more than others. But what we really have to talk about is my inner conflict because, you know, the criticisms of others are only about as devastating as my internal insecurities allow them to be.
1: Mm.
2: When I know that God approves of me, and I'm being faithful to his assignment on my life. I'm able to deal with that stuff. When I'm not in a good place, when something's a little off in my rhythm, even compliments don't register in my heart. Even encouragement doesn't register. So I'm, I'm learning that it's not those external voices, but it's really the relationship that I'm in with myself, my anointing, my assignment, and my God that determines how I process that and whether I go forward with it, the more I learn that, the more I can see, hey, put that on my business card, unqualified, put it right there in my Twitter bio. I'm unqualified. I make no apologies for who God made me to be. Um, I have a lot to learn. I've made mistakes. I will continue to, but I'm also called. And so my confidence is in my calling, not my qualifications. And that's helped me so much, both to deal with what people might say on YouTube and what I say within myself, because that's, that's where the real internal struggle is with me is what I know about myself, not what somebody else thinks about me.
1: Mm -hmm. That's such a powerful answer. And I really do think there's a lot of people in our audience that are going to be really helped by that. And just, um, how do we process some of these things and, and to recognize, I think you responded so humbly to that. Um, because even, even as I hear that story, I want to kind of, defend you a little bit like, oh man, how could he say that? Oh, but, thanks, man. <laughs> but but, you, yeah, the way you just yeah. processed it, it's like, yeah, that, that spoke to me. Let's change gears a little bit and talk about le- your leadership habits. Um, What would you say is the most important meeting you have in a given week?
2: Well, I, I just had this flash of wanting to be really spiritual and say my daily meeting with Jesus. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. Um, my biggest meetings shift because I operate the church from two sides, creative and strategic. I'm better at the creative stuff. My mind tends to think that way. The strategic stuff sometimes is not only laborious to me, but can often feel a little bit outside of my strength zone. But they're both so important. Once a month, I get up in front of the whole staff, about once a month. It can go a little longer than once a month. In in the earlier days, it was every week. But all of those serve a different function. And I found out that when I'm concentrating too much on one of those and not allowing the other ones to have their time, I, if I'm not meeting with our campus pastors who oversee our different campuses and my focus is on the creative aspects of the church, then there's going to be a leadership gap. And so there's really not one most important every week meeting as much as there is almost a an algorithm and a balance and a rhythm that we have to maintain so that my attention is not only being focused in the places of my preference but in the places of my priority which don't always line up.
1: Mm-hmm. Tell us about like as you as you're trying to develop staff culture. What is the kind of the the staff culture you're you're working to develop and how do you determine if somebody would be a fit in that culture?
2: Yeah, it's trial and error. I've had a lot of my team stay with me for almost the entirety of the church and I've had a lot of people come and go as well, so it's certainly not a science. It's an art. But we've done a couple of things that I think are worth mentioning within staff culture. Uh, Number one, just trying to make this a place where you would love to raise a family. I have a goal for our staff kids to grow up wanting to take their parents' job because what could be better than to be on Elevation Church staff? So I would throw two parties a year for just for staff kids. And honestly, we've been doing stuff like this on a smaller scale since we were very small. Now it's bigger but it was the same principle when we were little. Uh, I would give birthday presents to every staff kid in our church every year. That is systematized. It's important to me. Uh, we would give quarterly date night gift cards to our staff, several events throughout the year that our staff looks forward to, traditions that we built in, fitness challenges that we do together, scripture memorization challenges that we do together. I made a list the other day of what we've tried to do to make our staff culture a place where you can grow and thrive. And after I made the list, I thought, man, I need to cut back on some of this. It's gotten way out of hand. But then I stepped back from it and said, you know, if the people who do this, if the people who are making it happen and sacrificing for it are well fed, if we feed the troops, they'll be able to win the battles. And I, I really uh, place a premium on the fact that the people who are closest to the action love it the most. So that's in my values and what we teach. We have a kind of mandated set of values that guide the way we do things called our code that we've developed and tweaked over the years that aren't so much based around our theology, but just our practice. And we really try to not only drive that into the staff with teaching it, but living it and enforcing it through the way we do things. And so we try to have a lot of handles. But one thing worth mentioning for every leader is when my team knows I'm fresh and I'm coming to them with fresh direction that God has given me, fresh ideas, fresh excitement, fresh enthusiasm, that trickles down. And so I'm always trying to find fresh ways to restate the same values and trying to come at it in different ways. And that's really helped our team, I think, stay on their toes through the years and stay excited about moving forward. <laughs>
1: What are some of the biggest dreams uh, that you and your team are praying for for the future of Elevation Church?
2: Yeah, that's a cool question. It's changed a lot because now when we dream the dream, we also see the responsibility that comes with it. When you're beginning something, you only see the blessings, but you don't associate the battles with the blessings, and you don't realize that every blessing incurs a certain amount of, of sacrifice. And so when we look at it now... I think we're looking forward to outside of our town, Charlotte, North Carolina, seeing some other sites develop in other parts of our state, other parts of our country. But to do that, we're having to raise up leaders. So while we're dreaming on one hand about impact and exponential impact and all of the numeric goals and the geographical reach we want to have, our real focus isn't so much on the goals, but on the growth that's going to need to happen within our leaders to make that happen. So I'm excited about raising up more leaders from within our team who can carry out the vision because without all of that, it's kind of a fantasy. So we're putting a lot of focus into the formation of our leaders right now so we can be prepared for the opportunities God gives. We we know we can't predict them, but we want to be positioned to respond to them when they come.
1: That's so good. Stephen. thank you so much for taking time to, to talk to us today. Leaders are going to be so encouraged about your responses and the way that you're leading there. So thank you so much for your ministry and for taking time to share with us.
0: I'm glad to do it, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. If you are indeed finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast, we'd appreciate you taking just a few moments to leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders find our podcast so they can benefit as well. Also, don't forget to join me starting in February for a new season of the podcast. You don't want to miss it. Until next time, this is Jason Day, encouraging you to love well and lead well.
1: You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.